Well, church family, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the 19th chapter of the Gospel of John. We have been walking through the Gospel of John since New Year's Day uh, as a church family. And so it's fitting uh, that we are going to look at some passages from John chapter 19 as we reflect on this moment. In John's Gospel, his account of the crucifixion and the drama surrounding those moments, the theme is clearly the King of the Jews. You see that phrase repeated over and over again. And you know, it's a fitting and timely theme if you think about our world today, because there are serious questions of authority. Who's in charge? Who makes the decisions? Who are the people calling the shots? And so we look at the chaos in our world around us today, and we wonder, is anybody in charge? We look at our culture and what's taking place and the traditional methods of authority and the people that we look to for authority. And those systems continually break down. And, you know, right now I have a five-year-old in my home, and she's figuring out life. And so, bless her heart, she has a lot of voices who are always trying to speak into her, hers. And so it wasn't too long ago that one day she finally said, to us, mommy and daddy, so who's the boss? Good question, Skylar. And so we were clear, right? So if mommy and daddy are here, right? Daddy and mommy, we, we are the boss. We help you make decisions and we help guide you in the right direction. And if we have to go. My mother-in-law lives with us. If we're out on a date or if we're out of the house, well, then grandma is usually the boss. Well, if grandma's not here, then who's the boss? Well, Eliza is the oldest at 21, right? And if she's not there, if Lexi's taking care of you, it's Lexi, right? And if not her, then it's Ella at 16. And, and then if we get all the way down the line to Liam at 13, we realize we are not leaving the youngest two <laughs> by themselves at the house. But it's a legitimate question. And so then after pondering this for a moment, as she's, you know, working it out in her mind, she said, so when do I get to be the boss? My wife said, when you're a mom. And she said, you know what I want to be when I grow up? I want to be a mom. <laughs> and little Skylar, right, the impulse of every human heart is that we want authority. We want to be in charge. We want to be the boss. It's why Jesus had to come. It's why, as we have sang tonight, it's why Jesus had to die. Because in our rebellion, we weren't content to be in relationship with God. Instead, we wanted to be God. And the temptation of our human heart is to move our own self onto the throne that's intended for him and for him alone. And so as we reach John chapter 19, it's fascinating. Because as you read through the text surrounding those moments in the life of Jesus right before his crucifixion, you certainly see that there is a lack of who's in charge. There are all kinds of authorities. Of course, you have the Roman Empire headed by Caesar himself and Pilate, who was the local governor appointed by the Romans. He was really technically the one who had the authority to be able to condemn someone to death. But you also had the son of Herod the Great, Herod Antipas, who was a kind of a puppet governor in that region. You had Caiaphas, who was the head, the chief priest of the Jewish people, and they had their own ruling council, the Sanhedrin. And then, of course, you had the Pharisees, you had the Sadducees, you had the Essenes, you had the Zealots, you had the people themselves who had their own opinion. And you see all of those forms of authority swirling about Jesus in these moments. What we see in the story is the recognition of the king. 
Now we know that Jesus, as he rode into Jerusalem on what we celebrated last Sunday on Palm Sunday, that for a brief moment, he received the honor that was due him. In a moment that was reminiscent of the coronation of King Solomon, that Jesus rode in as the disciples and the crowds welcomed him, shouting, Hosanna, God save us, Hoshdea uh, in the Aramaic. And as they shouted that, they waved palm branches. It was a symbol of their nation. It was an incredible moment. And as the week went on, of course, Jesus and his confrontations and his teaching and his escalation with the religious leaders continued. But the people were still drawn to Jesus. They were amazed and awed by his teaching, all of the gospel writers tell us. They were drawn to his power. And yet, at the same time, people were confused about his identity. And so, as he is finally betrayed and hauled before Pilate, as we looked at, if you were with us this past Sunday, the charge that they levied against him was treason, one that he had declared himself the king of the Jews. And so this conversation about authority continues in chapter 19. Look with me in verse 6. It says, when the chief priests and the temple servants saw him, they shouted, crucify, crucify. And Pilate responded, well, take him and crucify him yourself since I find no grounds for charging him. Of course, Pilate knows they could not do this. They didn't have the authority to do this. We're back to that issue of authority, aren't we? When Pilate heard, uh, we have a law, verse 7. The Jews replied to him, and according to that law, he ought to die because he made himself the son of God. Such an ironic statement. And then in verse 8, when Pilate heard this statement, he was more afraid than ever. You see, I believe Pilate was convicted. I I believe it was dawning on Pilate the power of the one that he was in the very presence of. Truth personified. Love in person. Grace and mercy standing before him. And so Pilate went back into the headquarters and asked Jesus. He has another conversation with him. Where are you from? But Jesus did not give him an answer. And so now Pilate's now angry and he says to him, Do you refuse to speak to me? Don't you know that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? And there it is. Pilate is now playing the I'm the boss card. Don't you know who I am and what authority I have? Now Jesus speaks, verse 11, and this is so important. He said, you would have no authority over me at all, Jesus answered him, if it hadn't been given to you from above. Brothers and sisters, on this Good Friday, heed those words. Pay attention to those words. Our world may feel like it's spinning out of control, but there is no authority except that which is delegated by God himself. Don't forget it. Remember it. This is why Jesus says, the one who handed me over to you has the greater sin. And of course, he's speaking about Judas and his decision to betray Jesus. Then in verse 12, from that moment, Pilate kept trying to release him. Pilate wanted to set him free, but the Jews shouted, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. There's the power play again, isn't it? Anyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. And so now the Jewish people who hated Roman rule are using it in an attempt to get Pilate to do their bidding. Again, the irony of a people who claimed allegiance to God 
who knew the Old Testament scriptures backwards and forwards and all the promises about the Messiah, in this moment, they get a pagan governor to do their bidding by manipulating him with the threat of, we're going to go tell Caesar on you. It's ironic and it's tragic. And when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus outside. He sat down on the judge's seat in a place called the stone pavement. It was the preparation day for the Passover and it was about noon. And he told the Jews, here is your king. And they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? We have no king but Caesar. What a betrayal. The very people who claimed Yahweh as their king, now in their attempt to silence Jesus once and for all, claim allegiance to Caesar. And so he handed him over to be crucified. But as he did that, when they took Jesus away, Pilate, if you go down with me to verse 19, had a sign made and put on the cross, and it said this, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews, I want to put a picture of this on the screen, what it looked like. Many of the Jews read the sign because the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and it was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. So Aramaic was what everyday people spoke. Hebrew was known by that time mostly by the scholars. It was used for religious purposes, but the people spoke in Aramaic. Latin, of course, the official language of the Roman Empire. And Greek, much like English today, it was the lingua franca. It was what was spoken in culture and commerce. Translation, what Pilate did was post a sign to let the whole world know that this was indeed the king of the Jews. So the chief priest said to Pilate, don't write the king of the Jews, but write that he said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate replied, what I have written, I have written. And there it stands forever a testimony to all who would pass by it. That Jesus truly was declared by the Roman in charge of all of the proceedings. He indeed was the king of the Jew. He was recognized as such. But we also have to recognize, number two, that he was rejected by his very own people. As John continues to talk about what took place, we see over and over again the crowds, their bloodthirsty cries of crucify him, crucify him. Now Jesus indeed predicted that this would happen. And yet for us to watch his own people group betray him is heartbreaking, it's sad, and it turns downright ugly. As you heard in the reading from Mark, and we read it from John's gospel on Sunday as well, when a convicted criminal was put before them and the people had the opportunity to release Jesus of Nazareth, who was not guilty of any wrongdoing whatsoever, they chose Barabbas instead. It's true. Jesus would die in the place of a condemned sinner, a convict. And he died there just as he died for you and for me. And it's a reminder for all of us that the great temptation of our heart is to try to place ourselves in authority, is to try to do whatever we can with the things that we're given in our lifetime to prop up our own authority, to make much of ourselves, to glorify ourselves, to put the spotlight on ourselves. The great moment here in which we recognize our own sin was predicted long before. As a matter of fact, even 
As the Roman soldiers divide the garments of Jesus, casting lots, we go back to Psalm 22. And we realize that hundreds and hundreds of years before the Romans subopted crucifixion and used it for their own purposes in order to keep control and fear over the people to keep themselves in authority, these words were written. Psalm 22, verse 14, I am poured out like water and all my bones are disjointed. My heart is like wax melting within me. My strength is dried up like baked clay. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You put me into the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. A gang of evildoers has closed in on me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People look and stare at me. They divided my garments among themselves and they cast lots for my clothing. Hundreds and hundreds of years before these events, Psalm 22 predicted exactly what would happen, that the people would reject the Messiah, that they would crucify him on a cross. But what would be the response of that king? Of course, we know that Jesus cried out from the cross, the first line of Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it's tempting at the first reading, right, to to think that Jesus was forsaken in that moment, and yet we realize that Jesus knew the whole psalm. And that the Jewish people had the tradition, much like we do, if you would hum a line of a song that you knew, somebody else could complete it. They knew God's word so well that if you recited the first line of a psalm, it was as if you were reciting the entire psalm. And Psalm 22 doesn't end in defeat, but it ends in victory. Even in that cry, Jesus knew exactly what he was saying. And so Jesus may have been rejected by the people, but his response was not one of anger. His response was not one of outrage or to lash back out at them. Of course, Jesus was God. He could have commanded, as the scripture says, legions of angels to come to his defense. Of course, he could have summoned Elijah, as we heard earlier from the gospel of Mark, to take him down off that cross. But it was his love that kept him there the fulfillment of the purpose for which he was sent. And look what happens next. Jesus, as he is on the cross, in verse 25 of chapter 19, it says, standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple he loved, John referring to himself, he said to his mother, woman, here is your son. And then he said to the disciple, here is your mother. And from that very hour, the disciple took her into his home. John gives us three of the famous seven last sayings of Jesus from the cross. And this saying, woman, here is your son. And to John, here is your mother, shows us that on the cross, as Jesus was literally bearing the weight of the world on his shoulders, bearing your sin and mine, he shows his care and concern for his very own mother. What compassion, what poise that he wanted to show the world that this is what the church does. When people are outcast, when they are left alone, when they are widowed, the church wraps around them. They come around them to care for them. And from that very day, it says that John did that. Mary became like his very own mother. What compassion Jesus shows from the cross, caring for others, even in his moment of greatest darkness. Jesus goes on. And it says, after this, when Jesus knew that everything was now finished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, another important hint to us, Jesus said, I'm thirsty. Another one of his sayings from the cross. 
here we're reminded that Jesus is not only fully God, but he was also fully man. And after being beaten, loss of blood, his throat is parched for something. And it says a jar full of sour wine was sitting there, so they fixed a sponge of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it up to his mouth. Yet the fulfillment of yet another prophecy. And in this moment, don't read this right as an act of compassion, what it actually was. That sour vinegar, and what it would do is it would contract the throat muscles to keep the victim from shrieking in pain. And yet Jesus in this moment cries out, I'm thirsty. The symbolism there, of course, he is being poured out for you and for me. Living water is being poured out as he is crucified upon that cross. It reminds us of our need for the living water, a need that we all have. The prophet Jeremiah said, we are all tempted to drink from polluted wells, but only Jesus can bring us the life that we need. And then last, but certainly not least, in verse 30. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said these words, it is finished. And then bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. In this moment, these words are not, I'm done for. But instead, this is a summary of the story of salvation and redemption. That Jesus had done and accomplished what he set out to do. That he had paid the penalty in full on the cross for the sins of the world. It had been accomplished. It is a statement that that mission is accomplished. And it is, brothers and sisters, a shout of victory over sin and death. You see, every religion in the world is about what you do. Christianity is the one faith that teaches it is done. And there on the cross, done, paid in full, was stamped across history forever for all those who would receive and trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior. You cannot add to the finished work of Jesus. You cannot take it away. The wrath of God has been satisfied. Jesus has laid down his life. The victory has been won. The price has been paid. And Jesus was dead. His legs were not broken in fulfillment of prophecy, but his side was pierced and the blood and water flowed down. John goes to great lengths to tell us he's telling you the truth. Many witnesses can attest to it. And so in this heavy moment, we ask the question, who's in charge? Who's the boss? What John wants us to see over and over again in the words of Scripture is that Jesus fulfilled every promise about the Messiah. That Jesus was in control of his destiny. That Jesus indeed was not a helpless victim. He wasn't even a courageous martyr. Instead, he is and was the sovereign savior of the world who willingly laid his life down. Joseph of Arimathea, who John tells us was a secret disciple of Jesus, secretly asked Pilate for permission to remove and bury the body of Jesus. And Pilate agrees. Nicodemus assists. They quickly prepare his body for burial and they place it in a new tomb. The sun set on that Friday and sundown marked the beginning of the seventh day of the week for the Jews, the day of Sabbath. It indeed was 
finished. And with the setting of the sun, everyone thought the light of the world had been extinguished. The sky already that day had turned a strange color, deep dark clouds like a bruise. And on that day, Jesus, God in the flesh, the one who held all authority, the true king of the Jews and the whole world, rested. Will you bow your heads with me this evening? I'm going to give you a few moments in silence to simply reflect and ask yourself this question. Who's in charge of your life? Who's the boss? Have you attempted to make yourself the king, the commander of your own destiny? Are you looking to someone or something else to save you? Or is your king the sovereign savior who said from the cross, it is finished.